We started reading earlier in the service about Micah. We're going to be looking at Micah, a man who, um, well, let's just say that he had a very peculiar home life. But uh, we're also going to be talking about Dan. Now, every time I say I'm going to talk about Dan, I have to make it clear I'm not talking about my brother-in-law, Dan Hegman, nor my good friend, Dan Musum, or any other Dan. Um, but I'm talking about the tribe this morning, those who were descendants from one of Jacob's sons, Dan. And uh, Dan was one of the sons that were born to um, Rachel's concubines, uh, Rachel's handmaids that became concubines to Jacob. But all that is things that we can look up at other times. We're not here to talk so much about the man Dan as the tribe of Dan. The tribe of Dan does not get a lot of good press in the scripture. In fact, some of the things that it says about Dan is he's always just a little subpar. In the book of Judges, at the very beginning, there was war, and the the prophetess Deborah was used by God to help defend the people of God from uh, Jabin, who was a king of the Canaanites, they call him. He lived in a palace in Hazor. Hazor is just north of the Sea of Galilee. But at that time, when all the tribes got together to fight against Jabin and Hazor, Dan was missing. It says that Dan stayed by the seashore and was occupied with his ships. Earlier, when the Amorites were still living in the land of Canaan, it says that Dan did not occupy the territory that Moses had allotted for them. But they lived in the mountains because the Amorites controlled the low ground. And so by the time we get towards the end of the book of Judges, it really should be no surprise that we find that Dan is doing something that is almost completely incomprehensible. He's giving up on what God gave him. Remember, the promised land was divided under Moses' direction. It was divided up, and each tribe was given a place to live. And Dan was given the part of the promised land that lay along the seacoast from the city of Joppa all the way down to the road to Egypt. But those cities were Philistine cities. And Dan did not get along well, nor was he very successful in pushing the Philistines out. One man of the Dan tribe that we all know was Samson. 
He was strong. He was aggressive. He um, was flawed. And that just seems like he's a caricature of the whole tribe. And the sad thing about Samson is it says that he did more in his last final act and died uh, than he had done in his life. And so Dan and the people of Dan have this strange legacy. So um, I want to now turn to Micah. We read that he was lived in the mountains of Ephraim and he had stolen 1,100 shekels of silver from his mom. And his mom was upset. Well, justifiably. And so very loudly in his presence, she pronounced a curse on the money and a curse upon whoever had taken it. And uh, that, got to, that got to Micah. Um, I think it's a, a measure of just how superstitious the people of Israel had become that he was terrified of the curse that she pronounced on the money. And so he returned the money to her. And uh, in Judges 17, we read... Uh, this, I'm going to be reading from verse 3. So when he had returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, uh, his mother said, and this is interesting, I had wholly intended the money to give to my son to make a carved image and a molded image. Now, therefore, I will give it back to you. And so she said, well, you know, it's not that bad that you took it because I was going to give it to you anyway so we could make a nice idol for the house. Now at this point, most of the idols that the Israelites were worshiping, and there was a lot of it going on in the time of the judges, were made out of clay or carved from wood. And so to have a silver idol would really be a, a status thing, if you can imagine that. And so she gives him 1,100 shekels of silver. Unless you're reading. And you see, she gave him 200 to go make, a, to go make something that they could worship. Yeah, kind of calls into question her real intent for all that money as she only gives him 200. So Micah takes the money and he goes, and what does he do with it? Well... Ever since the time of Gideon, the idolatry that had crept in, and Gideon's probably about, uh, about 80 years to 100 years before this, Gideon had made an ephod, and all the people of Israel came and worshipped his ephod. Now an ephod is part of the priest's garment, a breastplate, an ornate breastplate, primarily, that was used in seeking God's will. And so we believe that the ephods that were made illegitimately were used in divination because they're a way to get a binary decision. Uh, you know what a binary decision is? Hmm? Tossing 
tossing a coin. That's our age's binary decision device. Toss a coin. Um, and so, the Urim and Thummim, originally the priest's breastplate, when you would go and ask the priest, like David did, it said, should I go up? He would reach in and pull out one of the stones from his breastplate, and depending which one he pulled out, it was go up or don't go up. And God used those kind of binary decisions, but he did not sanction, he did not use it when people tried to superstitiously use it for their own purposes. And so here they are. Um, they've got a shrine. They made an ephod. They had household gods to go along with it. And it says he consecrated one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, it says there was no king in Israel. And that's so important here at the end of the book of Judges because the book of Judges is getting us ready for David to come. But in those days, there was no king in Israel and everybody did what was right in his own eyes. And so that important phrase really sums up the purpose of the last part of the book of Judges. This is all prelude to the monarchy. But this is given to show how the standards of religious and civil life in Israel had completely broken down and were so far away from what God had commanded. It would, even especially, he's got idols and he's made his own corrupt priest, realizing there's a place for the priesthood, but uh, really trying to innovate on his own. Now, the story moves forward from here because somebody comes to town. A young man who was a Levite who was from Bethlehem comes into the area and he meets Micah. And when Micah meets him, he says, hey, you're looking for a job? And he hires him to be priest. That was an instant promotion. See, the Levites, they helped the priests. The Levites did all the routine maintenance at the tabernacle. And so suddenly he's gone from being a stevedore, carrying things around, or being the custodian, to being in charge. Hey, he enjoyed being a big fish in this new little pond he had found. And so he consecrates him and makes him a priest. And in verse 10 of that chapter, it says, dwell with me and be a father and a priest to me, and I'll give you 10 shekels of silver a year, a suit of clothes, and your room and board. So the Levite stayed. He was content to dwell with a man, and he became as one of his own. So Micah considered the Levite, and the young man became a priest, and he lived in the house of Micah. Now Micah says once again, now I know that the Lord will be good to me because I've got a Levite for a priest. He's getting better, he thinks. Do you see how superstitious they have become? God will really bless me because 
I've upgraded my priest to be a Levite. But things are going to get so much worse. Here's where the Danites come into the picture. The Danites, they were tired of struggling and banging their heads against the Philistines, so they decided to find a new place to live. So what do they do? 600 of them go off on an expedition, and they go looking for a place to move. And on their way, they stop at Micah's house, and they see that he has a priest. They see that he's conducting worship there. They see the ephod. And so, when they come back and get the rest of the tribe and say, you know, those of us who want some more elbow room, we've found this place, and they've found this little city north of the, Dead, north of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, they said, it's quiet. They're unprotected. We can kill everybody off and take it for our own, and we can live there and nobody will bother us. And so they all set out with their weapons. And while they're on their way, they say, oh, by the way, we're going to stop by at this house because he's got a priest. And I think he can help us. And so they go in and they speak to the priest and they ask him, hey, you want a promotion? Is it really so exciting to be priest for a family when you could be priest for a whole tribe? And he said, sure, that sounds good to me. And so his, the, the man from Bethlehem goes with them and he takes Micah's ephod, he takes all the idols, he just takes everything that Micah had assembled for his own shrine and they take off. Well, Micah comes following him and saying, hey, hey, that's my priest, and that's my ephod. What are you doing? And some of the men stayed back, and it was the kind of thing where, you know, here are these big, burly warriors, and he comes close, and they kind of pull their swords halfway out and say, you want your stuff? No, 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 I must be mistaken. And he turns around and goes home. And so what they've done is they've taken, at sword point, the ephod, the idols, and the priest, and they think God's going to bless them for that. And so off they go. And when they get to Laish, what do they do? They get to the town, and Laish, it says, was a quiet and peaceful town, living more or less apart from its nearest neighbor, Tyre. And so it says, they took the things that Micah had made and the priest who had belonged to him and went to Laish, to a people quiet and secure. And they struck them with a the sword and burned the city with fire. There was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon. And they had no one, no ties, no alliances with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rehob. So they rebuilt the city and dwelt there. 
And they called the name of the city Dan, after their father, their ancestor. And then the children of Dan set up for themselves the carved image, the priests installed in charge of the sanctuary, and they worship there. And the sanctuary there at Dan, it says, was there until the day of the captivity of the land. So up until Sennacherib and the Assyrians came and took the northern tribes captive, that idolatrous site of worship persisted all that time. And um, people used to say, well, if you really want to know what the Lord's will is, go to Dan and ask there, because they give you good answers. I'd like to suggest that our modern age is not that different from the time of the book of Judges. Just a few short points. One, the people of my generation, often called baby boomers, and those that have come after us, are restless people. My father left the Navy after World War II. He got a job for the US government. And he worked there for 30 years, one job. People my age seldom have one job for their whole life. We have two, three sometimes, different careers, because we're restless. We're always hoping to find something better. As soon as we start one project, we're looking for the next that will bring a bigger recognition from people or a greater financial reward. Most people, like I say, will have at least two separate careers in their lifetime. We're restless. Two, we tend not to be satisfied where we are. Not only do we want to move, change careers, we just want things to get better. My generation is the generation that really typifies upward mobility. My generation is the generations of the yuppies, the young, upwardly mobile professionals. You come home, Instead of spending a night with your family, you take night classes so you can get a better job. Self-improvement is a lifestyle, and that is often fueled by what I call disguised ambition. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not against people making themselves better, but I do think so often we make ourselves better at the expense of our families. That's a problem. Also, most of the baby boomers 
and those who have come afterwards have embraced one of the most uh, American of philosophies. I was listening to a philosopher say that if he had to pick the one philosophical system that is the most uh, indigenous to the United States, it's utilitarianism. In other words, if it's effective, it's good. The ends justify the means. Whatever it takes to achieve my ambition is morally justifiable. Well, face it. Living in this age, things are not quite as neat as it were for the tribe of Dan. We don't have a place to live that's been appointed to us by a great prophet like they had Moses. Nor do we have to work, no, we have to work much harder to find and follow God's plan for our lives. There's not a book, uh, book of Hezekiah that tells us what we're going to be, what training we should get, and how to get there. We have to do it prayerfully, with counsel and, and advice from others more wise than ourselves. But that doesn't excuse us from the task. It's harder to find where we belong, but it doesn't excuse us from the task to know where and what God wants you to do. I think that if we all had a better understanding of God's will for our lives, if we're all more actively seeking his will for us every day, we would be less restless, more content, and more productive in the kingdom. So I really would challenge us, let's not be restless woodliners. Let's rest in him. Instead of devoting our greatest energy to being ambitious, let's devote our greatest energy to be ambitious, to be pleasing to him. Let us not look to improve ourselves as much as we look to improve the place God has placed us by bearing fruit and displaying his image to the world to see. I think we'll find that happiness does not come from the pursuit of stuff, but happiness, true happiness, will always come from the pursuit of God. Let's pray.
Father, we just can't imagine the violence and the threats, the extortion, the things that happened as Dan looted Micah's shrine and carried away his priest to transplant that idolatrous worship from one place to another. It was bad at the beginning and worse at its end. Lord, we often don't try to see where we follow in their footsteps, pursuing more space, greater prosperity, less conflict. Father, help us to be the people you want us to be where you put us. Help us to become what you want us to be carefully and considering your word and your will. Make us students of your word. Teach us reliance on your spirit and lead us Father, we want to be what you want us to be. We don't want to miss your leading. And so we ask that you would make us more like Jesus. You've promised that we would never want your guidance and that you would never turn away a sincere question about your will. And so, Father, we come to you. Make us who you have designed us to be, that we might live for Jesus' glory here and now and for the rest of our lives. We ask for this in his name.